Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust's Handbook, and your host for this weekly look at all things to do with investment trusts. We are an independent organisation, but to save the regulators from doing so, please let me remind you that this podcast is provided for information and educational purposes only, and nothing you hear from any of the speakers today should be regarded as constituting investment advice. Perish the thought. This week, I am joined by two guests making welcome return appearances on the podcast. The first is Duncan McInnes, the manager of the Ruffer Investment Company, ticker RICA, with whom I discussed the markets and the trust's recent results, which have been disappointing, certainly for a fund whose objective, like that of Capital Gearing, whom we heard from last week, is to avoid losing money in any 12-month period, something that Ruffer has failed to do in its latest annual reporting period. And the second, making a welcome return after a year's absence, is Simon Elliott, the former head of investment trust research at Winterflood Securities, who has moved to be a client director at JP Morgan Asset Management, one of the largest investment trust management groups with 19 investment trusts in its stable. Now, listeners with long memories will know that Simon was instrumental in my starting this podcast more than three years ago and was my regular weekly co-host for the first two and a bit years of its life. Since his job change, we have of necessity moved to a new format, and while numbers continue to grow, I'm very happy to report, I know that his contribution was greatly valued, and his knowledge and experience, as well as his quirky taste in music, has been missed ever since. It's for that reason, for that reason among others anyway, that I'm happy to say that starting from this week, JP Morgan Asset Management, the aforementioned, has agreed to become a sponsor of the podcast. Their support will enable me to recoup some of the cost of producing 50-plus episodes a year, a credit here, as always, to our brilliant producer, Ben Gamblin, and also make it easier to invest in making the content even better, which I hope we can continue to do. In accepting uh, this sponsorship, I had only two conditions. One was that there would be no interference from them in the content, since the primary objective of the podcast has always been educational, and that would be obviously jeopardised if a commercial relationship was to become a factor something that they were more than happy to agree to. Uh, And secondly, that it would be possible to have Simon back on the show from time to time to share his perspective on developments in the investment trust world, given his extensive specialist knowledge and his new vantage point. For while we regularly have investors, analysts and fund managers as guests on the podcast, we hear much less of the view from management companies and from the boardroom, and perhaps we should. And yet that is, you may say, the most important perspective of all, particularly at the moment when boards in particular are under growing pressure to resolve a whole range of issues, scale, discounts and value for money among them. All in all, given that the industry convention is that all podcasts other than some of those offered by the BBC are free, and of course in the case of the BBC we do pay for them, albeit indirectly through the licence fee, and all podcasts are supported either by adverts or sponsors, This seems to me like a win-win, and we will press on with our mission to explain and inform to the best of our ability. As always, though, do continue to email me to give me your views on the podcast, including what we should be talking about and individual trusts that you might like to hear from. I am hoping in the not-too-distant future to offer subscribers to the Moneymaker Circle the chance to question managers of some of the bigger trusts directly as a small select group through a webinar but that remains work in progress. First, though, to the markets and investment trust news. 
A week ago, I hinted that we might be close to a turning point in the derating of the sector, and while one swallow does not make a summer, as the saying goes, there was some evidence in the markets that this might indeed be the case. For once, the economic news that came in was ahead of expectations, at least in the UK. The latest year-on-year inflation figure had a 7 in front of it for the first time in more than a year, when economists had been expecting something beginning with an 8. And the latest government borrowing figures were not quite as bad as last year, thanks mainly to the rise in the tax take following the last budget. Both of these are positive factors for gilts, if not for your personal finances, and yields duly came down reflecting perhaps greater confidence that the peak in interest rates is now near. That in turn produced a further pickup in many of these alternative asset trusts which have seen the worst of the derating in the investment trust sector over the past 12 months. With one exception, gilt prices were up across the board, with long-dated index linked leading the way, up between 5 and 8% on the week in the most extreme cases. Long-dated index link being the most volatile of the gilts out there. Only three short-dated gilts now offer you a gross redemption yield of more than 5%. The obvious implication being that if interest rate expectations are right and continue to come down, and you want to lock in those kinds of yields, you may have to move quite fast. But there could, of course, be capital gains to be had if you already own some of those issues at their most recent prices. By the same token, with gilt yields softening, The attractiveness of the long-term and partially index-linked cash flows offered by many alternative trusts may also start to come back into focus. The market certainly seemed to take that view. The investment trust index comprising some 180 of the trusts in the all-share index was up 2.8% on the week after rising last week as well. And the average discount on the index moved in from over 17% to somewhere around 15% as of yesterday. Looking at individual performers, commercial property trusts were prominent gainers, with TR Property up 7.8%, Tritax Big Box 7%, and Warehouse REIT up 6%. There were notable showings too from some smaller company infrastructure and renewables trusts. Gainers outnumbered losers by 4 to 1, and we haven't, I think, seen that for quite a long time. Looking across major global equity markets, the FTSE 250 mid-cap index, which has been in the doghouse for months, and sparked a series of those Broken Britain headlines, was the best performer, up 3.4%, comfortably outperforming the S&P 500 for what seems like the first time in ages. While Nasdaq, this year's hottest market, was down on the week, and the FTSE 250 outperformed that by nearly 400 basis points, or 4%. Is this finally the start of a renewal of interest in the unloved UK small and mid-cap markets? Well, it's early days, but maybe, just maybe. But there are still fears of a global recession. They're never far from the surface. In the US, it was notable that bond yields actually rose at the short end of the curve, suggesting that maybe interest rate rises there have still a little further to go, while 10 and 30-year yields were marginally lower. Oil was higher, copper lower, and gold flat on the week, so a mixed bag of evidence there. Turning to investment trust announcements, the biggest company reporting annual results was Polar Capital Technology, ticker PCT market cap 2.4 billion, one of the biggest players in the market. Its results for the year to the end of April showed an NAV per share return of 2.8%. This one doesn't pay a dividend against a positive 2.9% for its benchmark, the Global Technology Index. Uh, The trust repurchased 6 million shares at an average discount of 12%, equivalent to some 4.6% of its opening share capital. 
and has repurchased another 1% since the year end. The underperformance was uh, largely attributed to the uh, long-standing underweight that uh, Polar Capital Technology has in the big mega-cap tech stocks that have driven the American market rapidly higher this year. And the reason for that is they are wary of what they call concentration risk, having too much of the portfolio in a very small number of its holdings. The benchmark now has three companies, Apple, Microsoft and Alphabet, to account for more than 40% of the technology index that Polar Capital Technology is benchmarked against. And the trust itself has a still sizable, but obviously significantly lower, 29% in those three stocks. Ben Rogoff and his team, who manage the portfolio, point out they think that there was a big derating in software companies over the course of the year, and they are now beginning to look quite attractive after a significant derating, which actually cost the trust some performance. Ben and his team also make the point that valuations of big mega caps in the technology space, which have dominated the market, as I say, were trading on an average PE of 27 times, uh, which is higher than the five-year average of 22 times, and the 10-year average of 19.2 times. So tech generally is trading on a 1.4 times multiple, which is above its historic range. So there's obviously concerns about valuation there. While emphasizing the short-term risk from high valuations, Ben Rogoff also covers in his annual report, which is always worth reading, where it's a comprehensive review of what's going on in the technology sector. He also talks about what's been happening with AI, artificial intelligence, where there's obviously been uh, what he calls remarkable progress in the last year, not least the launch of ChatGPT, the pioneering generative AI application. In contrast with blockchain and the metaverse, two early stage technologies in search of a problem, he says, AI might yet prove to be what I quote, the most profound technology humanity is working on. He makes the point that technology impact is rarely linear. In fact, it happens in short, sharp bursts, and AI could well be a case in point. Some pundits believe it could add more than 3% to productivity in the global economy. He makes the point, for example, that the app economy is more than 60 times greater than the value of the handset market in 2007, the year that Apple introduced the iPhone. That's an example of the kind of hyperbolic growth you can see from a truly disruptive technology. And he concludes by saying, the era of generative AI is just beginning. And while it's not without all sorts of risks and moral and regulatory issues, he cannot help but be excited. And being a shareholder in Polar Capital Technology will at least give you a front row seat at what he calls potentially a key moment in history. More mundanely, perhaps, also reporting annual results was the 24 Income Fund, ticker TFIF, which is the third largest of the debt investment trusts in the investment trust universe, market cap of around 730 million whose strategy is to invest in floating-rate, high-yielding, asset-backed securities, a specialist market. However, despite the rise in interest rates over the course of the last few months, the NAV total return from this one was uh, minus 3.6% against its target of delivering an annual return of between uh, 6 and 9% per annum. Almost all of that accounted for by the dividend. Uh, however, the discount on this trust, uh, interestingly, has uh, narrowed from 5% to near zero, and the trust issued something like £79 million worth of shares, given strong demand. The board has also raised the target dividend from 6p uh, not so long ago to its current level of 8p. So that's 8p a year, and the shares traded around 100p, so 
uh, that at current yield is around 8%, which is no doubt one reason for its popularity. In the outlook, though, the managers of the trust warn about the risk of more volatility in the bond market as uh, interest rates continue to be a key focus of attention for investors. And the chairman of the trust talks about the fact that uh, economic recession has become more likely. It's funny how debt managers tend to be more pessimistic about the economy than equity managers, who by their nature have to be rather more optimistic. So the trust is changing the mix of its portfolio. Finally, among those reporting annual results was uh, Gore Street Energy Storage, ticker GSF, which had a good year in its latest reporting period to the end of March, with an NAV total return of 12.3%, as it brought more assets in the US and in Britain into operation. It was also uh, notable that it's one of the last trusts to actually raise a significant amount of money in the investment trust universe, raising $150 million in April uh, a year ago. This one has a continuation vote coming up on the 21st of September, and no doubt, therefore, the managers will be pleased since these uh, shares of the trust have moved from a premium to a discount in common with all the other renewable energy trusts in the last few months. Uh, They'll be encouraged that the uh, shares are up actually 13% this week, uh, which has brought the discount in quite sharply to around 12% now. Uh, There are also interim results from a number of trusts, but uh, notable amongst them, 3i Group, whose huge investment in the Dutch discount retailer Action continues to produce uh, extraordinarily positive gains. NAV total return for the interims here was a 4.1%, with the sales at the Action stores rising by 21%. We also heard from Brunner, the Global Investment Trust, NAV total return 1.6%, a marginally ahead of its benchmark. From the Technology Trust Herald, ticker HRI, where the NAV total return was essentially flat, slightly ahead of its UK benchmark, though not the US benchmark, but it also compares itself to. Uh, Turning to corporate news, some interesting developments here as well. Perhaps the most notable was the announcement by the boards of two of the Asian investment trusts managed by Aberdeen, namely Asia Dragon and Aberdeen New Dawn. They are going to merge further evidence of the consolidation going on in the investment trust sector producing a a combined vehicle that will have around some 700 million in assets. The terms are that the New Dawn shareholders will be offered a cash exit at a 2% discount to NAV, but limited to 25% of its share capital. That's because New Dawn is going to be disappearing, and Asia Dragon will be the continuation vehicle after the merger. Both trusts were trading on a discount of around 15% on the evening before the announcement, But the shares in Aberdeen New Dawn rose by around 7% on Friday, given that prospect of the potential cash exit. But there was not much change in the share price of Asia Dragon, suggesting that the idea of a merger here has uh, been relatively well received in the market. Elsewhere, I highlight the fact that we heard from Gresham House, which is the manager of a number of investment trusts, including not only uh, Gresham House Energy Storage, its largest investment trust, but also a number of VCTs, venture capital trusts, has announced that they have received a bid from a private equity firm, which is offering shareholders in Gresham House, the fund management company, a significant premium, I think of around 60%. But the news was that uh, there'll be no change in either relationships or personnel at the uh, several investment trusts that they manage. Meanwhile, also Scottish Mortgage have appointed a new director, Stephanie Lung, who is fluent in six languages and runs a social enterprise trust designed to support working adults while caring for elderly relatives. This coming after 25 years of business experience in various companies. 
Scottish Mortgage also uh, benefit from the news that uh, Oddity, one of the companies in which it has a stake, completed a successful IPO yesterday on Friday, resulting in a premium of 40% for shareholders. We also heard that the CFO, Chief Financial Officer of LXI REIT, is uh, stepping down to pursue other opportunities, that uh, well-worked phrase, and also that uh, the CEO of Victory Hill, the manager of the VH Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities Trust, ticker GSEO, has decided to step down. But here again, the portfolio lead managers, as with the Gresham House Trusts, remain. Finally, the CT property merger with London Metric is to become effective in August after all resolutions were passed by shareholders. As always, if you want to find out more news or the detail behind these announcements and the latest results, you can find them all on the Moneymakers website if you are a subscriber to the Moneymakers Circle, where this week we have a profile of India Capital Growth. When I caught up with Duncan McInnes, the manager of the Ruffer Investment Company, the Defensive Investment Trust, with a market cap around a billion now, uh, been very popular in recent years. I started off by asking him, uh, inevitably, about the latest results from uh, the trust. Had an extraordinarily good year last year when everybody else is losing money. But it's not been quite the same in the first half of this year, at least, Duncan, has it? Uh, no, that is fair to say, Jonathan. On the back of several strong years through the sort of COVID period, there is no hiding from the fact that the numbers were pretty disappointing in recent history. So we were down 2% in NAV terms over the last 12 months and 7% over the the first six months of 2023. And the share price was slightly worse than that because the shares moved from a premium to a discount. But as I said, that's in the context of about 9% annualised through the sort of 2019 to 2022 period which was uh, particularly trying for investors and you know really challenging markets. Yeah, so the long-term record remains intact, but it is fair to say, I think, that uh, one of your objectives is not to lose money on any 12-month rolling basis. So because of that combination of the small NAV decline and the fact that you've moved to a discount, which is unusual for you, only happens uh, periodically. Shareholders have lost money over that 12-month period. So you yes, have to, yeah, uh, absolutely right. you and, have to and say that. Have to put, put our hands up and apologise for that. But... So I suppose two things to talk about. First, we have been here before. It's not something that's happened often in our 30-year history. The, the trust has been going for 20 years and the rougher strategy has been going for almost 30. We have had drawdowns of this ilk before, in 2003, in 2009, in 2016 and, and in 2019. And although it feels very uncomfortable at the moment, we have had experiences like this in the past. So we had very uh, underwhelming performance in the run-up to the financial crisis through 2006 and 2007 before we performed very strongly in 2008 and nine. And similarly, as you might remember, because it's more recent, uh, we were pretty underwhelming in 2017 and 2018 as well uh, before that strong run from 2019 to 2022. So the point I want to make to shareholders is that This is not anomalous. It's not great. It's uncomfortable. We hope it's going to get better, but we have been here before. And the second thing you mentioned, the discount, this is only the fourth time that Ruffer Investment Company has traded on a discount in 20 years, which is a bit of a rarity in the investment trust world. And without wanting to make too much of it, because the sample size isn't huge, historically buying Rick on a discount has been a good strategy because it tends to mean that the market is ebullient 
It is not looking for protection. It is not focusing on capital preservation. It's focusing on capital gains. And uh, that tends to happen closer to tops than bottoms. And myself and Jasmine, my co-manager, uh, we both bought shares earlier in the month, personally. Well, before we go on and talk about the outlook from here and uh, why you're sticking to your guns, if I can put it that way, when we last spoke in January, you know, everything was going so well. We did talk about that and we did say, you know, you, you manfully uh, addressed the question of whether your strategy had been too clever by half. We had a conversation about that. Is that relevant to what uh, actually happened in the last six months and to why you have underperformed? Or is it more the fact that you're just out of sync with the prevailing market uh, sentiment? I think that's a good way of framing it. I think it's a bit of both. So there is a risk. You know, there is a valid criticism that we've tried to be too clever. So we came into the year concerned about liquidity draining from markets and from growing recession risks. And I think we would contend that those were justified back then and, and they're still justified today because not many people would have thought, uh, honestly, I think, that rates could get to 5% both sides of the Atlantic, that Credit Suisse and three of the top 30 banks in the US would go bust in Q1 and that in that context, the S&P would be back to within about 5% of its all-time highs, the NASDAQ up 30% year-to-date. And as we'll probably come on to talk about, the market starting to price in no recession, <laughs> the no landing, never mind the, the soft landing. But I think our principal errors this year arose from not the views, because I think those views will be vindicated, but the expression of the views. So some people would say, look, well, if you were bearish, cash was the obvious place to be. You, know, you could be in short-dated treasuries, you'd earn 4 or 5% over the year, you'd be up two year-to-date so far, and that's fair. But actually, it's not quite as easy as it sounds. So I was just looking this morning at the January 2025 gilt, and actually, you'd have lost money in that year-to-date. So very short-dated gilts until this morning, when rates have come down quite a bit, we're actually losing money year-to-date because bond yields in general have been heading higher. So what sort of VEX does this year is equity market concentration. So the very narrow number of big stocks driving the market, we haven't had enough exposure to them. So the low equity weighting that we did have hasn't really worked. We've also had currencies cost us quite significantly. The yen has been a big protective asset for us, and we can talk about that later. But the yen has weakened and sterling has been very strong. So the combination of that has cost us. And then on top of that, the derivative protections that we hold in the portfolio to look after the downside to make money if markets and the economy deteriorate, well, they've cost us because those protections haven't been required. So basically, your view has changed roughly more or less the same, perhaps maybe intensified, that we're definitely not heading towards a soft landing or even no landing at all. We're heading towards some kind of harder landing, let's put it that way. So what do you think this is? Is this just another period of markets losing touch with reality? Equity markets in particular, obviously, they've been very strong because of the AI kind of boom and the big seven tech companies and so on. Is it really just about that, a kind of behavioral psychological thing? Or do you think there is something to the kind of analysis that some people have put out saying that actually things aren't going to be as bad as people think? I think there is a bit of that, that there's a bit of a sort of echo bubble of 2021 in terms of sentiment, in terms of valuation, in terms of market narratives. People have forgotten all that pessimism of 2022. And yeah, the market's pricing in this sort of soft landing with AI-driven productivity improvements and so on. I think another thing that has been very interesting to watch is that we all know about the long and variable lags of monetary policy. You know, we've, we've heard that phrase for decades, but maybe what's been a learning this year 
is that the lags are longer and more variable than we ever thought. And, and various people have tried to sort of put numbers on this and they're all basically clever and educated guesses. 12 to 18 months seems to be the sort of, I think, the Bank of England's guess. But why are the lags longer and more variable? Well, we're working through the accumulated lockdown savings that are now almost gone. We've had significant wage growth, which has been offsetting some of the cash flow tightening by helping uh, incomes. And of course, fixed rate debt across the West has grown as a proportion of the whole, particularly in, in something like the UK mortgage market. So you don't have that immediate feed through of monetary policy that you used to get. And so that has changed the context of things a little bit. So uh, instead of being an immediate fuse that's about to be lit, it's more of a sort of ticking time bomb going on. Behind yeah, the our, our economist phrases it quite nicely, that the accumulated lockdown savings, to use just one example, were they either going to attenuate the recession, so you know dampen the recession by making the situation less bad than it otherwise would be, or were they going to be used to delay the recession, i.e. consumers keep spending, pedal to the metal. And I think if you go out in town <laughs> on a Saturday night at the moment, it seems like that's what's happening. It's still difficult to get a table at nice restaurants and everything's expensive and so on. So I think what that's done is people are burning through the savings, but it doesn't remove the sort of cliff edge risk when the savings run out. And that's reflected in, well, particularly since the importance of the US economy and US market, uh, consumer confidence is still pretty high and investor confidence has been kind of booming back again. And so sentiment has suddenly become very bullish. Nothing like a good story, a good AI story, a thematic story to get people's juices flowing. Uh, yeah, but there is quite a lot of evidence. And we, we put some of this in the annual report. There is a bunch of evidence that recession is approaching. So the, the one that everyone talks about is yield curves being inverted around the world. So longer dated rates being uh, lower than shorter dated rates uh, as a highly predictive of recessions in the past. You've had 500 basis points of interest rate hikes plus 90 billion a month of QT in the US. We look closely at something called the Sluice Survey, which is the Savings and Loan Officer Survey. That shows the willingness and ability of banks to extend credit into the economy. And that is at uh, recessionary levels because of the sort of ongoing, uh, we think it is ongoing, banking crisis in the US. The inventory to sales ratio is at 25-year high. So that sort of shows that companies are, are overstocked. And then a really interesting one, I think, because you're right, the consumer, it does appear strong from many angles, is that Redbook retail sales in the US are negative year over year. Now, that's a nominal number. So when you factor in the fact that inflation is pretty high, retail sales being down year over year is rare and, again, has never happened outside of a recession. So we're left with the uncomfortable conclusion that the markets may have got this wrong. And it's always difficult to be in a position where you're thinking that the markets have got it wrong. But it's always been part of your contrarian philosophy that that's how you're going to position yourself when the uh, the numbers justify it. So what have you done in terms of the portfolio over the last six months, say, as this has unfolded? Obviously, you've said the protections, the options and so on have cost you. But have you actually changed your positioning at all in terms of what you're expecting to benefit from the uh, environment as it plays out from here? We haven't really because our view hasn't changed. So the portfolio that we have today isn't that dissimilar to the portfolio we had at the start of the year. Um, where I think maybe conviction has grown on our part is in something like the yen. So we've got 16% of the portfolio today in yen exposure, and that comes from owning very short-dated yen bonds, some Japanese equities. We also have some 
call options on the yen and some yen rate options. And that the setup here is really quite attractive. So historically, the yen is a safe haven currency. If you think back to the financial crisis, it rose by 48% versus uh, sterling as uh, it attracted safe haven flows and benefited from repatriation of the carry trade. The yen today is really quite cheap on conventional valuation metrics. So things like purchasing power parity or the Big Mac index, it's at its lowest level since 2014 versus sterling and I think 1998 or something like that versus the dollar. I got a great anecdote from a US investor just this week. He is a hedge fund analyst in, in the US and he says all of his mates do their shopping on Amazon.jp, so Japanese Amazon, rather than Amazon.com because it's cheaper even after adjusting for the international shipping. So you know, there is the invisible hand in action telling you that the yen is very cheap. And we also have an imminent catalyst in that there has been significant monetary policy divergence in the last few years. And the new Bank of Japan governor, we think, although we did think this six months ago, will be likely to end yield curve control, which has been the main driver of yen weakness. And that should lead to the currency going up quite significantly, irrespective of whether or not there's a crisis. It should lead to Japanese bonds going down or bond yields going up, which should benefit the the position I mentioned in Japanese rate payer swaptions. So we think that's a really interesting idiosyncratic position. And it's got that safe haven element where it should act as ballast to the portfolio if there's a recession or crisis. Well, don't say you never learned something interesting on this podcast. <laughs> You'll turn immediately to Amazon.jp yeah. to, get yeah, our, to get our orders in for whatever it is we're getting. So that's the yen. That's a position. Now, what about commodities? It's interesting your position on commodities because you've been quite bullish on commodities generally. You have different ways of expressing that in the portfolio. But we have seen oil come down and coppers come down a bit this year. And if you're thinking we might have a risk of a hard landing, that does seem slightly at odds, you know, on the superficially. So what, what is your thinking about yeah. commodities and how does that fit into your general picture? Well, well we, we don't want the whole portfolio to be pointing in one direction. You know, that's always been the rougher philosophy that you want to have something on the other side just in case you're wrong. So you're right that the biggest risk position in the portfolio is, is commodities and most of that comes from oil. And when you look at commodities today, they seem to be pricing in a recession. Oil has gone from 120 in the summer last year, back down to 70 recently, and it's bounced up towards 80 now. So commodities look like they've priced in the the hard landing and equities, as we've talked about, are pricing in no landing. So we like the asymmetry of, of the setup from here. We have changed the way that we're expressing it, like you suggested, from just energy equities a year or two ago to now having a mix of energy equities and the commodity itself via futures. And the case is really, what if stability is maintained? What if the economic show does stay on the road? For that to happen, economic growth has to sort of surprise on the upside. It will probably have to be driven by some elements of fiscal stimulus, be it from China or the West. And then the specific oil setup, I think, looks really attractive. So The strategic petroleum reserve in the US has been run down by Biden to try and keep gasoline prices low. You have heard similar noises out of China, although their SPR data is a bit more murky. OPEC are cutting production, imposing supply discipline on the market. And then one of the most interesting facts is that financial positioning, so sort of speculator positioning in oil, has been totally blown out. So that is at levels not seen since 2007. 
And before people say, well, that was just before the financial crisis and that wasn't good for oil. Do remember that between 2007 and the financial crisis, oil went to 147 before it then went to 30. So we think oil is, is a really interesting way of playing the sort of bull, the bull case. And of course, longer term, it's an attractive asset to own in an inflationary environment. So just to be clear on that, when you say that the speculative position is blown out, you mean it's actually gone up? There's, there's a lot of bullish Oh, so, sorry. I mean blown out as in speculators have been blown out, carried out. They've lost money. They've had to close right, their right, positions. Exactly. So speculative position is very, very low. Exactly. So that's what I was expecting you to mean, yes. yeah. So this is a, a, like a kind of classic contrarian factor turning point. I wanted to ask you about something else, which is you mentioned already the fact that bond yields have been rising very rapidly, obviously, especially short duration bonds. And you make the point that they are obviously now alternatives to a lot of other assets. In fact, generally, there's a lot more options out there for people who are looking for ways to earn relatively risk-free returns, which you're in the game of actually delivering those if you can. So what do you think about what's going to happen if everybody does what they've been urged to do, which is to rush out and switch some of their money into money market funds, switch some of their money into bonds, uh, and so on. What's going to be the effect of that on uh, those particular asset classes and others indeed? So there's a little section on this in the report, which I think is is really interesting. So the change from a zero interest rate world to now a 5% interest rate world is absolutely profound. I think it really does change the, the investing landscape. And we all know people, either in the institutional world or just private clients with their own savings, who have been forced post-financial crisis uh, further and further out the risk curve to try and achieve their return targets. So if you wanted a 4% yield, you had to start straying into investment grade credit, high yield credit, equities, and so on. And it got to an extreme at the end of 2021. And that's the chart that's in the, the annual report, which shows that uh, to achieve a 7% expected return, which is sort of where most institutions and, and private clients are aiming for, you had to be pretty much all in on risk assets because bonds and cash just didn't help you get there. Now, today, the situation is very different. So if you wanted to build a 7% expected return portfolio, um, hypothetically, and of course, these are all sort of forward-looking expected returns, so who knows, but you could have a lot in cash, some in bonds, some in credit, some in some alternatives or property, but you, you wouldn't necessarily have to have much in the way of equity risk, which is, of course, the riskiest asset. And you certainly wouldn't need to venture towards private equity and venture capital, which are the most risky. So our concern is that everyone has spent the last decade or so iterating towards the riskiest end of their mandate to try and achieve their returns, and they might have to go into reverse. And so if everyone is going to be selling risk assets and moving towards less risky assets, then it's not obvious who the buyer is for all these risky assets. So if you think about your sort of stereotypical institution that's got 20, 25% in venture equity and private equity, how are they going to sell this stuff? Who are they going to sell it to? And the same applies to some degree to their listed equities. But if they can't sell their privates, then they're probably forced to sell their publics. So we think that that could result in a sort of global synchronized de-risking of portfolios, which could create really gappy markets where people show up to sell and there's just no buyers. So that's the super bearish take on things. The good news is that, you know, why take risk if you don't have to? You've finally got the opportunity now to earn a reasonable return without taking much risk. Now, let's not get too excited because inflation is still high. 
So the real returns on these cash rates and, and bond rates are still not particularly attractive. We've got negative real rates still in the UK and Europe, barely positive real rates in the US, but they are heading up the page. So I think in that respect, that's sort of good news on a forward-looking basis. But it's not good news if you've still got a portfolio chock full of risk assets. And you'd think that given the scale of the change in interest rates at the short end of the curve and the fact that it takes time for people to adapt their behaviour, you'd have to think that this uh, effect, if it's going to happen, is going to happen for quite a period of time, right? It won't, it won't just suddenly switch on and off like a tap. Yes, yeah. And the nature of institutions and, and private individuals is that they are slow moving. It's always, let's wait for the next committee meeting. Let's wait for the next quarterly or annual review. Yeah, this is a slow moving process. But I think it is a process that is almost undeniable because there's the fiduciary duty of these people to try and get the best possible risk adjusted return. And if you can meet your return targets without taking risk, then you should absolutely do that. So, of course, one of the impacts of this has been already seen in the derating of investment trusts overall as a class, not just equity trusts, not just uh, multi-asset trusts like yours, but a lot of alternatives as well, partly for the reasons you've said. So this has been a period where actually being an investment trust manager has not been ideal for you. And that may be one reason why the derating of your trust has gone on. What are you going to do about it? You do have a sort of discount policy, but it's not a zero discount policy. What have you been doing and what do you expect to do uh, over the coming months? So I think the broader industry point is a tantalizing one on a long enough time horizon. So the average investment trust, I think, trades on an 18% discount right now, which is about as wide as they've been in at least a, a decade. And I think you have to go back to the financial crisis lows to find similar levels of discounts. The equity trusts, which are more vanilla, simpler, should arguably trade on tighter discounts or 15 on average. So I think that the investment trusts universe is very attractive. And that's a great news story for wealth managers and for DIY investors that get involved in this stuff. Our discount, as mentioned, I think today it's sitting about two or three, it very briefly got to sort of five or six. I think the chairman's statement last year laid out the board's policy, and it is a board policy rather than a rougher policy, that uh, they would look to be active at around a 5% discount if that proved to be persistent. What we have found is that, and this is in conversation with the brokers, is that the buyers have emerged in the market at those levels or even before those levels. And therefore, the, the 5% discount has never been persistent. That's what happened recently. Again, so I think it would be great if the board could, could buy back some shares if we get that opportunity because it's accretive to existing shareholders. It shows shareholders that we're committed to maintaining a relatively tight band of premium and discount. And although it does seem like ancient history now, I would hark back to 2006-07 when we traded on a persistent discount for a while and the board at the time made a tender offer at NAV to allow people to exit if they wanted to. And so we bought back uh, 16% of the shares outstanding at NAV, giving shareholders that exit at a good price. So um, Ruffer Investment Company is 5% of Ruffer's overall assets under management. We have every intention of you know, treating shareholders fairly and ultimately the investment trust trading at a discount is a little bit of a sort of black mark on the reputation of Ruffer LLP. So you know we, we want to fix that as soon as possible. And like I said earlier, one way of fixing that is Jasmine and I buying shares and showing that we continue to have faith in the strategy. This has been very helpful, Duncan. Thank you. 
Well, let's end on then this issue which you've talked about before, which is rough as the investment trust, anyway, taking that as a proxy for your general strategy, performance before and after crises. What you're kind of hinting at, I think, here is that if your analysis is right, we are going to get some kind of tough period, call it a crisis of some sort. And that historically has been positive for the trust because that's how you're positioned. Would that be a fair way of summing up what you're saying? Yeah, so we have got this very defensive liquid portfolio at the moment. What we have in the portfolio that private investors and and in fact most wealth managers too don't have and can't have is the unconventional protections. So right now we have volatility call options which served the portfolio really well in 2018 and 2020. We've got equity puts. We continue to have the credit protections, which were great for the portfolio in 2020 and 2022. And because of the way that markets have moved this year, that volatility has been crushed, risk premiums have tightened. These are back to very attractive valuation levels. And so if we have a recession in the second half if the market has a wobble. And I think there's many, many reasons why that could be the case. Then the protection could punch really hard for us. Plus, you have things like the yen that I mentioned earlier, which can do a lot for us. But right now, when you look at what the market is saying, I think it's really pricing in a rosy outcome that we have this immaculate disinflation, that inflation stays down, which means that rates can come down which means that corporate profits can grow at 10% next year. That's currently what's priced in. Corporate margins, which were assisted by inflation, things like bottlenecks and greedflation, can be maintained even during the disinflation. The rates and and bond yields coming down justifies a 20 times multiple on the S&P. And that might happen, but all, all of that is a remarkably narrow tightrope walk for policymakers to sort of achieve for the economy. And we just don't think it's likely. One other factor there that might come into it is, of course, politics, which you also mentioned in your uh, latest report. We have got a rather important election coming up next year in the US for sure, and the UK probably not far behind or even before, depending on how that plays out. And politicians don't like going into elections with recessions. So do you think they'll be straining every sinew? It might actually be another factor why we might just get defer this moment of truth for a, a little while longer. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. The phrase politics trumps economics is the one that always sort of comes to me. I would have thought that the Conservative government in the UK or, or maybe the Biden administration would almost take a recession right now so that you could hopefully be in the recovery by the time we get to the elections next year. The idea that they can stave off the recession until the back half of next year, I think, is relatively unlikely. Now, of course, it's possible. You look at the the news this week, Goldman Sachs have reduced their probability of recession very significantly, as Mohammed El Aryan also has. So there are credible people jumping on the, the soft landing bandwagon in the last couple of weeks. But how, how do you do that? How do you stave off the recession? Because you, you can see that economic data is slowing down everywhere. Well, I think you have to stave it off with fiscal stimulus. That's how you keep the economic show on the road. But pretty obviously, if you add fiscal stimulus into the economy right now, you'll reawaken the inflation that's currently at the heart of the problem. So there's no easy solutions. Like I said, I think it's a relatively impossible tightrope walk, but I have to admit that they have stayed on the tightrope for longer than I would have expected. Well, there's a prognosis of Duncan McGuinness, the lead manager on the Ruffer Investment Company, ticker R-I-C-A. On then to my conversation with uh, Simon Elliott back on the podcast after a gap of a year. 
So my first question to Simon was the obvious one. Why has it taken you so long to get back on the podcast after spending two years with us? And then, you know, it's been a year as I look at my calendar. So um, what's up? What's up? Well, what an interesting year it's been. I don't think I've been invited back, have I, for a year? I'm not sure. But I'm delighted to be back today, for sure. It's been a very, very interesting year since I think we last spoke. I mean, for the investment trust sector, it's been a little bit of a up and down, probably more downs than ups, frankly. But again, a fascinating time to be looking at an investment trust. Yeah, I did actually look at those numbers. But before we go on, perhaps I should just ask you to explain why JP Morgan Asset Management, great business as it is, has decided in its wisdom to sponsor and partner with us in producing this podcast, for which you were, I have to say, largely instrumental when we started it three years ago. So I'm very happy that we have this arrangement now. But perhaps you could just explain why you've decided to take this extremely rash step. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure about Rash. No, look, I mean, we're hugely excited about it. I mean, I think you describe it as the world's most popular investment trust podcast. I have no reason to doubt that that is indeed true. But I think you do a fantastic job in terms of spreading awareness and understanding of what's going on across the investment trust sector to professional and private investors alike. And I think that's very important. I think you found a little bit of a, a sweet spot. So the fact that we can help take the Money Makers podcast to the next stage, you know, start a new chapter. You know, I think it's a fantastic opportunity. And I think we hopefully all will be beneficiaries. Well, of course, listeners will think, uh, having heard that, they'll think, well, you can understand why we decided to do it. But it's very kind of you to say that, Simon. But as I said, you were actually instrumental in making it the success it has been. So very happy to have you back on the podcast. And also interesting to hear your take on it from, if you like, a different vantage point. You were head of research at one of the leading brokers and market makers. And now you're working for one of the largest, if not, well, largest, I think by number, the largest provider investment trusts in the UK. So it will be interesting to get your take on what's happening in the sector. I just looked up the numbers this morning since you last came on a year ago. Actually, the investment trust index has not done as badly as you might think. I mean, a lot of the damage was done in the first half of last year. It did get worse mm-hmm. in the second half of the year when rising bond yields and, and the trust government and everything else sent discounts rattling wider, particularly for the alternatives. But the index itself is obviously on a bigger discount than it was, a 15% discount, I think. But the index itself is only down, I think, around about 5% over the last 12 months. That's partly because there's been quite a recovery this week. It's just by chance we talked to you Mm -hmm. this week. And actually, we've seen the investment trust uh, sector have a little bounce this week. What do you think that's down to? Is it only about uh, expectations that interest rates may be coming close to the peak in the current cycle? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I mean, look, we've been in a kind of risk-off mentality now for a period of time for the reasons that you outline every week on the podcast. And I think just over the last week or so, there's been a bit of a step change. People have looked at this and thought, well, maybe we're coming to the end of the interest rate hiking cycle, certainly in the US, possibly a bit more to go in the UK, clearly. But I think that has just changed the animal spirits a little bit. But you're right. I think we've enjoyed a couple of good weeks for in the investment trust world. It has been you know, a tricky period. Discounts still remain wide. But it's interesting when you drill down on looking at those investment trust discounts, I think you mentioned a figure of 15%. And my friends at Windflood send those numbers around every day and you see them and I see them too. But if you kind of get behind those numbers and look at what's going on across the whole sector, that actually on the alternative side, the discount there will be much wider. I think I saw some research recently from another broker, Sencos. I think they had at the end of June 
alternative funds on about an 18% discount, while the long-only equity funds are, are probably near about 11, 12. And that's been a big derating on the alternative side. So again, it pays to kind of drill down a little bit to really understand what's been going on. But it'd be hard to argue that the investment trust sector overall has had a golden year so far. Obviously, it's uh, plenty of time to go yet, but it's all about individual investment trusts and, and the opportunities they provide. Well, looking back over your time in the investment trust business, which does date back more than 20 years, and you've got, uh, you're starting to get the grey hairs to show, uh, Simon, something you share with me. <laughs> How bad is it? A 15% discount. I mean, it has been out to 17%, I think, or nearly 18% at one point at the worst point. How bad is that compared to historical experience, or at least your experience? So perhaps we should leave out the pandemic because that was a very brief episode. Yeah. We're going back to the global financial crisis. Is that when it was last time it was this bad? Yeah, I mean, you talk about the pandemic, I think it bounced off about 22%, about the, the time that we first began talking on a, on a regular basis. But if you go back to the GFC, it probably be high teens, 20%. And again, it was the less liquid underlying vehicles that were really struggling at that period of time. So the private equity funds, as now, were struggling at that time. And also some of the, the fund of hedge fund type products that had been kind of launched in the noughties really got derated quite hard during that GFC period. So look, we've been there before. There's definitely a case of you know deja vu all over again. I think when we originally were talking a, a few years ago, you made play of the fact that I'd talked not long before the start of the pandemic that uh, the investment trust sector had never had it so good. And, you know, possibly has the investment trust sector ever had it so bad? Well, yeah, we've certainly been here before in terms of difficult periods. But from a, an investor's point of view, I think really the question is, is there money to be made from here? And certainly, if you look back at the GFC or the aftermath, or even going back to the early noughties when I started covering investment trusts, so that would be the aftermath of the tech boom. You know, there were some quite beaten up investment trusts at that stage. But for those canny investors prepared to do their homework, there was certainly plenty to go for. Well, certainly, if you actually manage to preserve some capital along the way through the sell-off, then you're in a position to take advantage of the bargains, which undoubtedly will appear in due course. Is it simple enough to say that from historical experience, you look at the things that have done worst in terms of derating and expect them to bounce back the fastest? Or is it rather more selective than that? I mean, I'm thinking, for example, of UK small cap. You've got a couple of funds in that area, which have gone out to very wide discounts by their historical standards. They tend to come back quickly if the market is turning. I'm not saying it is. And what about, if you like, the bond proxies, the alternative assets that have significant yields, which don't look quite so attractive now when you can get 5% on a UK short dated kill? Yeah, so there's a few things there. I think the first thing to say is you should never just buy for discounts alone. So you will come across in some investment trusts, and you and I both looked at them over the years on huge discounts, and you get people saying, well, surely this must be a great bargain. But invariably, there is a reason why you see very, very wide discounts. So again, just be very careful before you kind of jump into those situations. In terms of those out-of-favour sectors, and you mentioned UK mid and small caps, and it's been a really tough year. It's a tough few years, actually, not just a tough year, but a tough few years in that space. And obviously, discount levels reflect that. Then I think the point to be made there is that investment trusts suit contrarian investors. If you can pick up investment trusts in out-of-favour sectors on wide discounts and be patient enough to wait for them to come back into favour, then you get that double whammy effect of an asset class on the front foot and discounts tightening in. And there are good returns to be had there. I mean, the question is, how long do you have to wait and what's the catalyst? And that's obviously a more difficult question to answer. But in terms of the bond proxies, I think that's very interesting. I was listening to your podcast last week with Alistair Lang of CG Asset Management. And I think he was almost licking his lips at the prospects of some of the returns to be made across the investment trust space. 
And again, it's similar to the situation in the noughties and post-GFC for those investors, not just professional investors, but for those investors who are prepared to do their homework, really look at what's going on, understand the risk involved, because there is balance sheet risk out there on some of those alternative names, undoubtedly. There's a few other situations have kind of bubbled up as well in terms of things that frankly have not gone well, have not gone right. So you've got to be aware of that and be wary of those kind of things. But I mean, if you can navigate those factors, I think there are returns to be had there. Looking at the alternative asset classes, those bond proxies, are they going back to premiums anytime soon without corporate activity? I think that's a more difficult argument to be made, frankly. Interest rates are not going to go back to zero or near zero anytime soon. I think we can all agree on that. And therefore, I think the outlook overall for that area of the investment company sector is mixed and there will be rationalization. And we've already seen that this year. I mean, every week on the podcast, you talk about corporate activity. Um, not a week goes by without another investment company, both on the long only equities, the kind of more traditional funds, and those on the more specialist funds announcing some kind of strategic review or a merger or whatever it might be. And that will continue for a period of time. And again, that's similar to the experience from the early noughties and in the aftermath of the GFC. So we are in a period of rationalization at the moment. Yes, today we're recording this on Friday. We actually heard of a couple of Aberdeen trusts which are emerging, Asian trusts are emerging. And that seems very sensible because they're not particularly large and they'll benefit from that. So you would expect to see rationalization both within, if you like, fund management groups, their stables, and also more difficult perhaps between one existing trust and another. Yes. With us, and quite often there's, I think what we call them rather politely, hygiene issues when you come to consolidation. In other words, which is who gets to remain on the board of the trust, for example, if you merge with another trust and so on. And those are often um, quite tricky issues. Yeah, look, I mean, I think there's been a kind of discussion point over many, many years in the investment company sector that turkeys don't vote for Christmas. Why would one set of board of directors decide to kind of vote themselves out of a job? I think that is possibly been overplayed as a concern. And I think it's become less of a concern as the years have gone by. I think, in my experience, boards of directors are far more switched on what's going on. I think the consolidation that we've seen in the wealth management space, and obviously there was a big announcement earlier this year, but I think that's focused minds in terms of the requirement for investment trust companies to be larger than they have been historically. And I think, as I say, investment trust directors are prepared to be pragmatic. Though mergers, consolidation, it is difficult. There are technical aspects to this. There are costs involved in this as well. It takes quite a long time and quite a lot of money has to be spent in order to make it happen. You're absolutely right about that. So it's got to be a compelling reason. Yeah, I think it's got to be a good reason. It's got to work for both sets of shareholders as well. So I mean, in the JP Morgan stable, we have an investment trust called JP Morgan Global Growth and Income. And that was involved in two mergers last year. So it merged with the Scottish Investment Trust and then also another JPM investment trust, JP Morgan Elect, was rolled into it as well. And certainly the elect deal was done in relatively short order. But the Scottish Investment Trust did take a period of time. You know, it was quite a complicated deal. We got there and, and the result is that Global growth and income is now 1.8, 1.9 billion investment trust. So it's a pretty decent size. So it ticks that particular box of size and liquidity requirement, all the rest of it. So there will be more deals, but they're not entirely straightforward. And it's not just about investment trust boards trying to desperately cling on to their jobs as a concern. I think that fades as the years have gone by. Yes, I think I might make a comment in passing there, having been a non-executive director, which did wind up a trust. It is quite a complicated issue, and not least because you're not paid a huge amount of money to be a director of an investment trust. At least it depends which kind of trust you're involved in, to be fair. And you either do an awful lot of work or not much if things are going well. So it's <laughs> if they don't go well, it can be a complicating factor. I wanted to ask you also about the UK, because obviously one of the things that's happened this year or recently has been we've seen the strength of sterling. 
And that means that the kind of returns you get from investment trusts that have high proportions of overseas investments, and here we're talking not exclusively about equity trusts, that has sort of dampened the returns you get, reversing what happened last year when actually people did quite well out of the fact that sterling was so weak. In your experience, what is the JP Morgan sort of approach to this in terms of, if you can generalize about the trusts, do you actually try and do anything to hedge the currency risk or anything like that? Knows the short answer. I mean, there's a few wrinkles to that. So again, the Global Growth and Income Fund, it hedges back its currency risk to the benchmark, if that makes sense. So it tries not to take currency bets. But, you know, that's probably an isolated point. I mean, like most investment trusts, we don't try to second guess where we are on the currency side. You're right. I mean, it does make a difference to returns, clearly. But again, in my experience over 20 plus years, investment trust managers invariably find it difficult to make currency bets. There are clearly exceptions to that. But overall, I think, I mean, I would think back on some of the Japanese investment trusts over the years and how periodically you'd find a Japanese investment trust manager taking a currency view. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. But I think it's just one of the factors of investment trust that you do have that currency risk. And sometimes it works in your favour as a UK investor and sometimes it doesn't. Do you think that investment trusts are doing enough to buy back shares? In other words, some trusts are being very assiduous at buying back shares to defend a particular discount target. One or two have a zero discount target, as we know. But that's not generally the case across your stable investment trusts. But do you think broadly, talking at the market as a whole, do you think that people are doing enough in terms of share buybacks at the moment? And if not, what are the reasons for not doing it? Yeah. So look, there has been some criticism, I think, as you've highlighted on the podcast, that buyback programs have not really stepped up to the plate overall across the whole investment trust industry this year. And I have some degree of sympathy with that particular view. I mean, just in terms of the JP Morgan stable, I mean, we have 19 investment trusts, two actually are on a premium at the moment. So obviously, buybacks are not relevant for those two. Of the remaining 17, the majority will have bought back shares at some point during the year. I mean, the overall rating on the JPM stable, I think it's probably about 8 9% discount or so at the moment. So it'd be kind of high single digit. And obviously, there is a range within that. So you mentioned the UK mid and small cap investment trust, they would be on the wider end of that range, for instance, for obvious reasons. But overall, should there be more buyback activity? I think it's difficult across the whole sector because of the nature of the underlying assets that a number of investment trusts are exposed to. So for those investment trusts that have a high exposure to private companies or private assets, then buyback programs are quite difficult to pursue. Again, for obvious reasons, because you don't have the liquidity in the underlying portfolio. I think the other point is, you know, what are you trying to do with your buyback program? You're trying to reduce discount volatility, which certainly, I mean, if you look at, again, in the JPM stable, we have a JP Morgan American. It's been quite active on its buyback runs. And you know, I think the board have been quite clear that they are very minded to keep a close eye on the on the discount. You can see that it's kind of average between three and four percent over quite an extended period of time. So that would be an objective there. Just take that discount volatility out, which for a portfolio essentially looking at large US caps, then that works. But for some of the other mandates out there, I think it does become a, a bit more difficult. So I think the point with buybacks is you've got to be quite clear what is your objective. For some investment trusts, they might say, well, look, you know, we're on a I don't know, 20, 25% discount. We have got some capital on our hands. Why would we not do this? If their balance sheets are in good shape, then let's take advantage of that. That could be quite attractive. But I think what you can't lose sight of is for those, and again, we talked about some of the alternative asset funds, if your discount is so wide, 20, 30, 40% or wider in some instances, then you probably have to ask 
what is the market telling you in terms of your pricing? Is it suggesting that perhaps it doesn't believe your NAV? Is it suggesting that you don't have a kind of long-term future? And you know, just throwing some money at the market via buybacks, I think, might almost be dodging the, the central question there. Well, let's address that issue then. Based on experience, we're going to lose some more investment trusts over the next few months. I think that's pretty clear for the reasons you mentioned, the consolidation, the size factor, the big wealth manager merger you also mentioned between uh, Investec and Rathbones uh, and the regulatory factors. All those kind of things are going to drive and the sell-off and the derating are going to drive consolidation. Would you like to hazard a guess as to how many trusts we might lose over the next year? If you say there's a universe of, say, 400, of which maybe... I don't know how many of those are VCTs, so we'll perhaps leave them on one side because they're special cases. So maybe let's say, uh, I don't know, 300 and something. Do you think it would be normal to lose 10% or 20% or, or what would you think? I mean, there's always investment trusts that come and go in any given year. I mean, that's even when the sun is shining. You always see investment trusts come to the end of their life or whatever it might be, or the shareholders just say, look, it's not working and things move on clearly. I think over the next few years, there will be clearly a higher number, and you've already seen that in the first six months or so of this year. I mean, as the exact number, who knows, pick a number. But again, going back to the noughties and the GFC, we did see a big contraction in the sector at that point. In the case of the GFC and the immediate aftermath, the issuance market or the IPO market kind of switched on a little bit. So it was kind of names coming in, names coming out. But I think to see 10, 20 investment trusts disappear over the next year or so would not be out of the question possibly even more. Well, we can't finish our conversation without talking about some of the things we used to talk about back in the day in the podcast. One is about the cricket, obviously, and I know apart from anything else that um, JP Morgan is one of the sponsors of the Test Series. That's very good news for you because it's been quite riveting, hasn't it? What's going to be the outcome? We're recording this. We don't yet know the outcome of the fourth test, but there's one more to come. But um, we've got to win this one, haven't we, before the rain comes in? We do. And I'm spending quite a lot of my time looking at the weather forecast from Manchester and having spent a number of years there in my youth, I do worry that the Manchester weather will let us down because it's set up to be a brilliant test match and it's been a fantastic series. So definitely a welcome distraction from difficult markets. So yeah, we'll see how that goes. But I am enjoying baseball, I've got to be honest, which probably brings us nicely on to talking about Barry Manilow, actually. Yeah, indeed. Well, I mean, some of the old timers in cricket don't like this basball stuff. They think it's very dangerous, modern nonsense. And I don't know what Barry Manilow would think about that. Now, why do we talk about Barry Manilow? Well, because uh, when we were talking back in the day about music royalty trusts, I uh, mistakenly <laughs> referred to the fact that I assumed that Barry Manilow was no longer with us. And yet, and of course, I apologise for that the next week when it turned out he is very much alive. And not only is he alive, but he's actually also back on the road, I believe. I looked him up this morning and he's appearing in Las Vegas this evening, I think. So anybody who wants to catch Barry Manilow, who is now 80, that's what's happened to him. He's still going. So I don't know what we take from that, Simon, but I think we both agree that perhaps he wasn't entirely our taste in music. But <laughs> put it the other way, another way around, because the, uh, the Music Royalty Trust no longer trade on a premium and no longer sort of buying lots of new catalogues and running out of opportunities to talk about obscure bands that some of us actually did like back in the 80s and 90s, but no longer do like. Anyway, what do you make about Barry Manilow back on the boards at, uh, at the age of 80? Well, you know, obviously I'm partial to a little bit of Barry Manilow. I think most people are secretly. I mean, there's you know, some classic tracks over the years, Could It Be Magic and so on and so forth. But certainly one of the things I really used to enjoy in our conversations or preparing for our conversations every week was kind of looking up whatever artist was in the news that particular week whose catalogue had been sold and having to Google them and having to listen to some of their tracks in preparation for our inevitable discussion of the merits of uh, the strengths of their catalogue. But sadly, I don't have an excuse to do that anymore. So 
my music choices have, have become a little bit more diminished or limited over the last 12 months or so. Yeah, well, that's one of the things. Perhaps we'll hope that if this uptick in the fortunes of investment trusts uh, that we've seen this week continues, then who knows, then maybe we'll be back to having an opportunity to talk about musical choices, shall we say, and the chance to make some terrible puns about song titles and so on. Anyway, Simon, it's been very good to talk to you again. Uh, very good to have you back on the podcast. I hope we'll talk to you again more often in the future. And we'll uh, look forward to, as I say, hoping that uh, this is about as bad as it gets for the investment trust sector. It could be a turning point. Let's hope so. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust Podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.